Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. We're going to read chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Have you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely his anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we concluded our series in the New Testament, the uh, Immerse series, and we were in the book of Revelation, which gave us the opportunity to think for a minute about the great big story, the grand meta-narrative of God's creation, which we began in the garden and which concludes in a city. Uh, John called it uh, the New Jerusalem. St. Augustine called it the city of God. And, uh, and, and this is our alpha story and our omega story. And everything that happens in our lives between alpha and omega finds its proper place in this great drama of a playwright who, um, who, who wrote himself into the play as the main protagonist. We are storied creatures. Uh, we live according to a narrative. Harvey Cox at Harvard said that every human being has an innate need to hear and to tell stories and to have a story 
to live by. What is your story? What story do you live by? What is the grand story? We have to choose which narrative will be our defining story that will determine our approach to life. And so today we shift the preaching life away from that great big story to a particular story within the Bible, the story of David. Uh, you know, the Bible is, on the one hand, it's one great story. It is also a book that is filled with particular stories. It's a collection of particular stories about ordinary women and men who get caught up in this sacred drama with God. We sometimes even call the gospel itself a story. Um, when God chose to redeem the world, He didn't just drop a bunch of religious proscriptions for us to follow. No, he sent his son. And in the life, in the story of Jesus' birth, life, teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension, we find our salvation in his story. That means that the purpose of these particular biblical stories are not to make them relevant to us and to our lives, but to make us relevant to them and to the Scriptures. Through the Holy Spirit, our little stories, our little lives get caught up in this great sacred drama of God's redemption of the world. And so that means that our lives are never limited to carpools and Instagram and failed fitness programs and uh, late social security checks. Those things are just minor details in a much greater drama that God is still writing with your life. Now, I know that this talk about story, um, theologians call it narrative theology, is a bit too folksy for some people. What we would prefer is to have models, models that we can follow. The purpose of a model is to set a standard um, and so that we can know what we have to do in order to meet the standard. So if you look at a model in a magazine, you could do so and you could say, well, this is what I have to look like to become beautiful. Of course, the problem with models is that they always judge you for what you are not. For me growing up, um, I thought that to become a man was to be like Michael Jordan. I used to sing the song all the time, like Mike, if I could be like Mike, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. And it, was, it, was, it didn't take long before I realized that by that definition, I was never going to become a man. It just wasn't in the cards for me to be like Mike. Um, similarly, if you have a spiritual model, you could try to emulate him or her, uh, but that will also only be a judgment of what you've not become. This is why Jesus is not our role model. Jesus is our savior. We don't try to emulate him. We take on his very life and his very identity. Um, the Bible has very few role models and many stories, earthy stories, stories of ordinary women and men who were really nothing special, but they responded to the sacred calling of God on their lives and they drew near to God's heart. 
Then their lives became special. This is how the story of David begins. And we're going to take four weeks and look at his life. David was a shepherd. He was a warrior. He was a king. And he was a poet. When Israel was a young nation, it was governed by judges. These judges included people like Samson and Gideon and Deborah. They were charismatic figures that God would raise up whenever there was need for help, need for leadership, need for arbitration. And the judges would provide that leadership for the nation. The last of these judges was an old man named Samuel. And he had gotten on in years and all of his sons um, were useless. The people of Israel got to a point where they couldn't take it anymore, and so they came to Samuel and they said, we've outgrown this style of government. This is a little archaic. We want to be like the, you know, these new nations, and we want to have a king. And so Samuel said, okay, and he went out and found a king for them. The best candidate for the job appeared to be a man named Saul. He came from a good family. He was popular, he was good looking, he was the best looking person in the whole country, he was literally head and shoulders above all the other candidates. But as time went by, it became clear that as a leader, Saul was a complete disaster. He was power hungry, he was an egomaniac, he was paranoid of losing his power. Uh, He even resorted to the council of witches, which in the Old Testament is never a good idea. Worst of all, he didn't have any character. He didn't have any backbone. Saul looked great on the outside, but like a large oak tree that had fallen lying on the ground, it was clear that something rotten had eaten up what was inside of him. Under Saul's leadership, the people of Israel went into a long and dark drift away from God. So it wasn't really surprising that God was ultimately done with Saul, rejected Saul, and decided this time to select his own king for the people. As God told Samuel, the last judge, who was then a prophet, the Lord doesn't see as people see. They look on the outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. And when God examined the hearts of all of his people, he found David. Here's a simple list, uh, just so you can know if you're new to the scriptures, the people who are listed in this story, in, uh, in this chapter. You have Saul, who's the first king, power hungry, he's ousted. Samuel, the judge, the last judge, God's messenger and arbitrator. Then there's Jesse, who is in Bethlehem, and he's a sheep breeder, the grandson of Ruth and David's father. He has eight sons. David, the youngest of eight sons, short in stature, a shepherd. This means that Ruth in the Bible is David's great-grandmother. We aren't told much about David's physical appearance, Um, The Bible says that he was uh, ruddy, which literally means red. Um, He was a lot smaller than Saul. He looked ridiculous in Saul's armor. Scripture also says that he was handsome, but it also says the same thing about Absalom's horse. So we don't really know (laughs) what that means exactly. We know a lot more about David's position in life. He was a shepherd, 
which meant he spent lots of time out in the pastures tending the sheep. He had lots of time for solitude. He had a relationship with the land. He had a heart which compelled him to love the sheep. He was kind, gentle, and caring. Many times he would risk his own life for these sheep. He reports killing a lion and a bear, uh, so he was tough as a shepherd. He named each one and each evening checked each one for any abrasions they may have gotten and then put oil on their abrasions for healing. The sheep knew his voice and they stayed with him because they trusted their shepherd because they knew he loved and cared for them. But being a shepherd in the first century wasn't exactly um, a highfalutin position. It wasn't exactly a noble profession. Being a shepherd in the first century is kind of like the modern equivalent of being a parking lot attendant. And he was the youngest of eight sons, which means not much, actually. Um, he began with a lousy deck of cards from all outward worldly appearances. He had a lousy job, a lousy birthright, and a lousy bunch of brothers. He was nothing special. With Saul, everything started right. He was handsome. He was tall. He had the right family, the right pedigree, the right background. He had popularity. He had all the right appearances. But his life ended as a dismal failure in suicide. By contrast, David had everything started wrong, but he ended his life as the greatest king that Israel has ever known. The only thing that made the difference was that David had a heart that God could not resist. Everything else God could, could work with. Now, a person's heart is hard to see. But as the text reminds us, the Lord doesn't see as people see. Maybe, maybe there are areas in your life that haven't turned out the way that you had hoped, that you would have wanted. Few of us are Saul, and, and those who are usually are the least happy. But since it's the Sauls of the world that seem to get ahead in life, it's tempting to think that we can, if we just change our outward appearances, we might have a new story. There's a Saul that lives within every one of us as well. The advertising industry realizes this. It's why they keep peddling one product after another, knowing that we're hooked on changing our outward appearance. But the Lord would tell us that if we really want to make changes, the place to start with is our hearts. If you want your life to make a difference in the world, don't start by going to graduate school or volunteering for a new ministry. Start by loving God. Continue by loving God. It's the only thing that really matters to him. Everything else, like work and relationships and opportunities to serve and give, they're all in God's hands anyway. The only choice we really have that matters is not what we will do, but to whom will we give our hearts. And with our hearts in God's hands, anything is possible. You may end up in graduate school or volunteering for a new ministry. You know, even a shepherd boy can become a king. Can you imagine the scene in Bethlehem when 
Samuel showed up to make sacrifice and to select the new king. As soon as he arrived, all the elders in the town, they were all bothered by his presence and his arrival, thinking he might be chastising them or something. And, and he, he just simply says he's going to make a sacrifice to God. And he wants Jesse to, to come and all of his sons. And when the sons of Jesse appear before Samuel, the first in line was Eliab. And Eliab was tall, and he was the firstborn, and the eldest son. And Samuel took one look at him and said, yes, this must be the one. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Those of you who are dating know about this. You began your date at dinner thinking, surely this is the one. But about halfway through dinner, you realized, nope, I better keep looking. When God saw Eliab, he told Samuel, nope, you're looking at the outward appearances again. So next, Jesse brings out his number two son. No, God says, this is not the one. Then the number three son, no. Then came the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. No, no, no. No. Samuel kept saying, no, no, this is not the one God has chosen. Now let's think about this for a moment from Father Jesse's perspective, from Papa Jess. He hears from Samuel that God wants a son sacrificed for the house of, from his house to lead the people. He wants God wants a son sacrificed from his house to lead the people. He brings in from what all outward appearances seem to be the best that he has to offer, only to have seven of his sons rejected. How many times in your prayer life do you have to hear God's no before you hear a yes? Well, according to the text, the ratio is about seven to one. Um, but don't take that literally. Uh, like Jesse, you may hear no a whole lot before you hear God's yes. But that might only be because there's something yet you haven't offered to him, something special, something that's close to your heart. That's all that God really wants anyway is your heart. You see, we don't know that David was discarded from Jesse uh, from the lineup of sons be because Jesse didn't like him. In fact, it could be because little Davy was his favorite and he was the one who was closest to God's heart. He was just a shepherd boy, nothing special to the world, but to a parent, very special. Surely, Jesse must have thought, he could keep the youngest one at home to tend the sheep. Are all your sons here, Samuel asked. Well, there's the baby of the family, but he's out there in the fields tending the sheep. He's not really fit for a king, more of a lover. You wouldn't really want him anyway. Bring that one. Bring that one. And when David walks in, still brushing the dust off of his robe, God says to Samuel, arise and anoint him, for this is the one. You've got to be kidding me. This little squirt. And maybe as 
Samuel pointed, poured the anointing oil on David's head, maybe he whispered in his ear, you're the one, you're the one. And as those confusing words were ringing in his ears, in his head, the text says that the Holy Spirit fell mightily upon David. Of course, the word for spirit is the, is the same word for wind, so you could read it as the mighty wind from heaven rushed upon David and pushed him from the outskirts to the center of Israel's entire history. You see what's happening in this story? And the question is, do you see how the same drama, the same thing is happening in God's sacred drama with your life too? In the Bible and in your life, there are always two stories going on at play. There, there's the public linear or horizontal story that we can all see and know, and it's very predictable. This public drama, another choice is being made, just like so many other choices we've witnessed. It looks at first like another beauty pageant. It looks like Eliab will be chosen to be Saul's, the, just, uh, to be chosen just as all the Saul's before him. But then there's also the sacred vertical drama playing out, which is harder to see. The narrative is never predictable. The wind from heaven, the sacred wind that actually drives our story, our history, is about the push of an ordinary person like David and you into an extraordinary calling. You're the one. You're the one. And if you're ever going to find God's calling in your life, you have to pay attention to that vertical drama that doesn't play by the same rules of the horizontal stories of the world. You've got to hear the voice of the one who says, you're the one. I've chosen you. Do you remember how wonderful it was when you were chosen for something in your life as a kid or as an adult? Maybe at, as a child at recess, they picked teams for the baseball game and you were chosen to be on one of those teams. Or maybe you weren't chosen and you felt the pain of that. But then later you got a phone call and somebody asked you to the prom or do you remember when you got that ad admissions letter back from the college you applied to that said, we have chosen you for admission into this great university? Or do you remember uh, when an employer called you and said, there were many, many candidates for the position you applied for, but we chose you? This is also at the beginning of your story with God. You were chosen. You can never forget that. You can never forget that ordinary, like David, you were chosen for an extraordinary role in the great drama of God's creation. But this being chosen by God, it's, it's not a competitive thing. It's not something that we can boast about. It's not like we're chosen and my colleague is not. Um, you being chosen... As Henry Nouwen writes, he says this, he says, when we claim and constantly reclaim the truth of being the chosen ones, we soon discover within ourselves a deep desire 
to reveal to others their own chosenness too. This is God's economy. It doesn't work the same way. Instead of making us feel that we are better, more precious, or valuable than others, our awareness of being chosen opens our eyes to the chosenness of others. That's the great joy of being chosen, the, the discovery that others are chosen as well. In the house of God, there are many mansions. There's a place for everyone, a unique, special place. Once we deeply trust that we ourselves are precious in God's sight, we are able to recognize the preciousness of others and their unique place in God's heart. So God takes ordinary people like David, ordinary people like you and me, and he invites you into an extraordinary calling, a sacred drama, and he chooses us. What does he choose us for? To give him our hearts. Let's pray. God, our hearts are the hardest things to give to you, and yet they're what you want most. We're hesitant not because we think our hearts are too precious, but because we don't value them as much as you do. So teach us first to receive your heart that we might find the courage to give you ours as well. In Christ's name, amen.